0: Continuing our story of the boy who would become king, the Lord's anointed, we know that temptation is common to all of us daily. And it's no different for the Lord's anointed, David and Jesus. As we've been studying through this story, we've seen the Lord's anointed and, of course, these pictures that have been fulfilled in Jesus, and we'll continue that. But the messianic lens at this point in the story is very strong. And, of course, we'll tie into that, and there'll be a message for us. But there's actually three temptations over the next three chapters. David's going to be going into the wilderness, and a lot of you are already making those parallels to Jesus. In chapter 24, we see this robe episode. Uh, but, of course, in chapter 25 and 26, there'll be two other episodes, two other temptations. The one, I think, in chapter 24, and if you're just reading through it, you know, this might not strike you at first, but when you really think of it, especially that's what's more implicit, it becomes a, a test of humility. And humility, to me, can be confusing. I sometimes have a hard time really grasping what it means to be humble. And of course, we look out into the world and we read texts and stuff. I think it confuses even more so. But in this text, we get to see an example of David's humility in the way that he handles the temptation correctly. And in that image... I think it helps us better understand how we can be humble in a way that pleases God. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24, let's get ourselves back into the story. If we remember at the end of chapter 23, God has used the Philistines and an attack upon Israel to draw Saul away from David and his men. It looked like things were hopeless that Saul and his men were about to take David and that the Lord's anointed would be destroyed. But God, he provided. In his providence, David and his men were protected. And we see that David took his men to a refuge in the stronghold of En Gedi, which is in the tribe of Judah, close to the Dead Sea. It's actually a very beautiful place. And he is encamped there. After Saul takes care of the Philistines, he gets 3,000 men. And he goes and he looks for David. And, of course, he is searching about the area, not to make any type of truce, or friendship, but to destroy David. And later that will become somewhat ironic. David and his men are hiding in a cave. Saul does not know this. And the caves of this area, they're not just small holes in the side of hills. These could be very vast uh, holes in sides of, um, of big things that would be beyond hills, more mountainous type ranges. And so you could go back there and it could go on and on. And so when Saul goes in there and it says uh, explicitly what he's to do. There's a bit of Hebrew there that sheds some light on what he's going to be doing and how long that might take. So the Hebrew tells us that Saul covered his legs. So that lets us know that Saul's going to need to sit down and it's going to take a little while. And David's men see this as a sign from God that this is the day that God has given David's enemy into his hand. And so they're trying to persuade David to take advantage of this opportunity and to strike Saul, to take him down. And therefore, of course, David could take his place on the throne. And so David is, he's conflicted, and he partially takes their advice. Saul just being right there at his fingertips, he decides to just cut off the edge of the road. But then immediately, his conscience weighs upon him and he regrets the decision. Now coming back to this time, there's a lot of symbolism. Even in this book, we understand there's symbolism in regard to the robe. There's even a part where King Saul had cut part of Samuel's robe and Samuel had told King Saul that the cutting of the robe was a symbol that the kingdom would be taken away from Saul. We even saw Jonathan that gave his robe to David, acknowledging That the kingdom would not come through Jonathan, but it would go to David. And then we even see, of course, right here, but even later with the robe of Samuel being a representation as far as the king and the kingdom. So we see it several times in this book, and it's consistent even throughout historical secular records. There's a lot of symbolism involved. And so for David even to just cut the corner of the robe, it was a symbol of disloyalty and even rebellion against the Lord's anointed. And David, in his humility, recognized, who am I to stand or strike or do anything against the Lord's anointed? So when we look at verses 6 and 7, and depending on what translation you're reading, you'll see it depicted in a different way. The ESV is, I think, a little bit too soft. Because when we think about the meaning of the word here, as far as what David did in regard to his own men, The word really means to divide or to tear apart. So some translations, I think, that speak of David scolding his men or severely rebuking his men are probably the most accurate. I think he ripped into them for them trying to persuade him to do something against the Lord's anointed, which would be wrong. Because if we go back into the story, we don't see any prophecy or anything that David would be able to take the Lord's anointed into his own hands and do what he wanted with him. And so when we look at this situation, you know, you could ask yourself, is this temptation or is providence? But at this point in the text, we should understand that this was a temptation. And David almost gave in to the temptation and sinned against God by taking the Lord's anointed into his own hand and doing what he wanted to do and ascending to the throne his way. But of course, David was able to resist the temptation and those would try to persuade him, he rebukes them and puts them into his place. Now, as we come into verse eight and following, we transition here as Saul leaves, David comes out. And now if you might imagine what would transpire there, you know, maybe in just normal human nature type uh, situation, what we might have a tendency to do, we see David act probably differently. He bows down and pays homage to Saul. And cries out to him. And he lets him know that he had an opportunity to kill him. And if you look at verse 12, he says rather, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. He even speaks of the evil in which Saul has done to him, but that David is not evil. I will not do evil. I am not evil. And even speaks to himself as if he's a dead dog or a flea. I'm a nobody. Quit listening to people that are telling you that I'm out to do you harm. I could have killed you and I have not. He puts this before Saul. And this weighs heavily upon Saul. Saul recognizes that David has done nothing but good for him. And Saul has given him evil. And so we get a strong picture here of overcoming evil with good. And that's exactly what David has done here. Now, in Saul's response, recognizing what Saul has done to David and what David has done to Saul, it brings tears. Saul is upset, and through those tears, he says, is this your voice, my son David? We're up to verse 16 in the story. And then we see Saul acknowledging. You know, this is amazing at this point. All that Saul has done to chase and try to destroy David, he acknowledges That yes, David has treated him well and that Saul has done nothing but evil upon David. And he says in verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul knows this to be true. Saul knows that David ascending to the throne is the will of God. Saul Saul knows it and he acknowledges it at this point. So he wants to make an oath that David will not kill or destroy his offspring when David ascends to the throne. All right, so there's the story. There's chapter 24. Now, the messianic lens being so strong, let's see those pictures of the anointed. So the first one that we see is that the temptation of the anointed. David, of course, can seize the throne for himself, right? He can... You know, forgo any further suffering. He could kill Saul, take the throne, and bypass doing things God's way. Now, if we fast forward and we think about Jesus, you come into John 16, verse 15, and we read of something very similar. It says in there that the multitudes came to Jesus to make him king. There's the temptation. Jesus could have let the people make him king, and then there goes another path. He goes into his kingship among the people, but Jesus instead resists that temptation, and it says in the text that he withdrew from them. So the opportunity was in front of him, just as an opportunity was in front of David, and both David and Jesus passed the test. They did not take the opportunity. Instead, they obeyed God, and they worked God's process. They didn't try to take a shortcut in the matter. And now, as many of y'all probably have already thought, fast-forwarding into Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is drawn out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's tempted by Satan. And we know in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, Satan says to Jesus, quote, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, of course, we know that God was going to give Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. The kingdoms would be his. His kingdom would be established. But in order to do it God's way, Jesus was going to have to suffer. He was going to have to suffer and die. And we know the stress as we read in Matthew's account that that put upon Jesus. And here Satan is offering him a shortcut. You can have the kingdoms and you can bypass all that God would have you to suffer. Do it my way. But of course, as David passed the test, Jesus passed the test as well. That's the first strong messianic picture that we see here in the story. The second is that the anointed would be tempted by his own men. David's men told him, this is the day that the Lord has given your enemy into your hand. Kill him. Take the throne. And David almost did. I mean, think about that. Your closest people Right? Our brothers and sisters giving us advice when we're in difficult circumstances and we have to resist the advice of our brothers and sisters. This is what David had to do. And when clarity came to him in seeking the will of the Lord, he strongly rebuked his men because that was not God's will. And you think about in Jesus' life, you would come to Matthew chapter 16, this very same temptation was put before Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. It said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And then look who it is. Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter could not fathom that the Lord's anointed would have to suffer and die. And so he tells Jesus, No, do it this way. Let's bypass this. This is not for you. And of course, Jesus does not give in to the temptation. He's focused on doing the will of God and rebukes Peter. So again, we see David passing the test, and then we see Jesus passing the test. Jesus is willing to go down the path of suffering in order to remain within God's will. Now, the third picture that we see here with David, the anointed will entrust his life to the Father. Now, think about that as we're trying to be faithful servants, there are many times that things are going to be very difficult. We can become emotional, and within that, it can be hard to see clearly. And that's where we need our spiritual eyes. We need to pray for wisdom and spiritual discernment so that we can see as God sees. But even beyond that, we have to learn how to just trust God. We're not going to always understand and certainly why we would have to suffer or why we'd have to do this hard thing or whatever it is. But we've got to trust and know that God is good and His will is good and long-term, that's how we'll receive the glory and the eternal rest. It's just trust and obey Him. That's what David did, and that's, of course, what Jesus did as well. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12 is what highlights this as being David's mind and heart. He says to Saul, Quote, may the Lord judge between me and you. So David didn't take judgment upon himself. He didn't look at the opportunity and put himself on the throne and become the judge. He said, let the Lord judge. He put that upon the Lord and was willing to trust the Lord. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David understand it was not his place, his right To put his hand upon the Lord's anointed. It was his place to honor and follow the Lord's anointed. And he would do that even in those difficult circumstances where there would certainly not be clarity upon what would be right and wrong outside of that clear fact, you do not put your hand against the Lord's anointed. That would be rebellion and disloyalty to God, whom there is no other authority, right? the same thing happened to Jesus or the same thing Jesus had to withstand. And we see through Peter's words that Jesus in the same way as David would pass those tests over and over and over again as he was tempted in the same way. In 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at 22, it says this, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither there was there deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. So all these different times that Jesus, the Lord's anointed, was reviled, he did not revile in return. So all these times he was treated in this manner, Jesus did not return evil for evil. Jesus overcame evil with good. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued In trusting himself to him who judges justly. And with the power of the Spirit, y'all know what Jesus could have done in all of those instances, taking it into his hand and abusing the power that had been given him by the Spirit. But instead of that, he didn't threaten. He didn't abuse the power. He just continued to trust God and know that God would judge justly. He stayed focused on his mission. Now, as we think about these pictures, David being a shadow of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, both of them not succumbing to temptations to seize and shortcut their paths to the throne, and then finally entrusting their lives over to the one that judges justly, it comes to a message. And we have to ask the question, so what does this mean for us? And my first point would be that when we have opportunities We can't assume that those opportunities are divine approved by God. I mean, we all get these ideas in our mind and our heart. We have these opportunities before us, but it's dangerous to assume just because the idea is there or the opportunity is there that God approves of it. Now, I've never heard this among our brethren, but just in the world, talking especially sometimes to denominational Christians, I hear them say such. You know, well, the idea wouldn't be there or I wouldn't have such a strong desire in my heart to do this if it wasn't from God. And so in that manner, they almost compel themselves to do it just because the idea is there or the opportunity is there. And even beyond that, there may be an opportunity for an easier path. And they feel like, well, you know, I was listening to the sermon on Sunday And there's this opportunity here, and what I'm doing right now is really hard. You know, this service thing is really hard, but here's this opportunity. I think God wants me to take it. But what's really there in their heart is, I want to take it. And here's an excuse to take this opportunity, and then I can say that God gave this opportunity to me, and it's justified. All the people will accept it, right? Because that's what we care about, what the people want. No, we can't look at things that way. We have to see how the Lord's anointed deal with these situations. And these were terribly difficult situations that would require great spiritual discernment. But David and Jesus both would pass these tests and we can too. So opportunities can certainly be temptations. And if we step into these opportunities and they're not divinely approved, yes, it will become sinful, but it also could lead to spiritual destruction if we follow paths or follow ideas that are not approved by god it could be disastrous to our family or to our soul or to the souls around us so in the humility and this is where i spoke of where it can be very difficult to understand humility but if we think about this you know intently about david and the way he handled these situations i mean for me the image that strikes so strongly is after him coming out of the cave he bows down to saul I mean, think about the way that Saul has treated David. But yet David comes out and bows to him and pays homage and then shows Saul, recounts to him. You have done nothing but evil to me and I have done only good to you. Stop listening to those people. I could have killed you, Saul, and I did not do such. I am nothing but a dead dog or that of a flea. I'm a nobody before the Lord's anointed. Don't listen to these people. And then finally, it strikes Saul's heart. It strikes his mind. That's the humility that we have to have in these difficult situations when these opportunities or these ideas come. We have to be willing to go to the Lord and seek His will. We have to pray for spiritual discernment and wisdom and be willing to do what God's will is, even if what God's will is is extremely difficult. And there's this other path right here that's easier and that we can easily justify to our family and our brothers and sisters in Christ by you know, telling them this or telling them that. But we can't do that. That's not what David did and it's not what Jesus did. So instead, we are humble enough to seek the will of God and ask and gain God's eyes. We have to see as God sees. And at that point, I think we will have the clarity to make the right decision. The decision that pleases God rather than that pleases men or ourselves. The second, and this is the final point that I I feel like is a message for us within the text, is that we cannot take shortcuts. Now, if you think about sin, you think about these opportunities, all of them are really shortcuts away from what God would have us to do And the joy and the complete rest that only God is able to give if we do things God's way. I mean, you could think through even sins like lying or the manifestation of our anger. If we allow it to become sinful, uh, sexual immorality, all of those are shortcuts. I mean, Satan will give us what we want if we will allow him to. Sin is at the door, right? It's knocking on the door, and if we want it, Satan will put it right there, and we can have it right now. But, of course, that pleasure is fleeting, and there comes some serious consequences in this life, and, of course, the next life, if we go down those paths. And instead, we have to be willing to do things, of course, God's way. So, when we think about the shortcuts, the path for us to obtain that crown and that promised rest is by not shortcutting our faith, and by not short short shortcutting the process in which God would have us go through in our trust and obedience of God. So again, as I I come back and I feel like this is where it all comes to as far as application. We have to be willing to humbly go to to the Lord. I know we have a tendency to think, and if we listen to our culture, we'll try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we'll try to struggle through things and figure it out, out ourselves, We've got to really train ourselves that the first thing we do is get on our knees. We've got to be humble like David showed us. Pay homage to God, the one who knows what is right for us. And seek to understand what is right. What is the will of God? Pray for that spiritual discernment. Pray for that wisdom. And then trust that God is going to show us. And then follow God's will. For there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And there is only one way to receive forgiveness of sins. The world would tell us there's other ways and that there's other paths to salvation. But the word, the almighty word shows us different. There is one way, one Lord, and we have to learn to come to him humbly day after day. And when circumstances are at their most difficult, that doesn't mean that we pray less or that we go to the word less or when we're really busy, as Jack alluded to, which can so easily happen today that we pray less or that we go to the word less, it should mean that we wake up earlier or we carve out other time and that we go to the word more and that we spend more time in prayer so that we can put on our spiritual eyes and see as God sees. And then we'll have the clarity in those difficult situations when the idea is there or the opportunity is there or this other path is there and we'll be able to see clearly and we'll make the decision that is right before the Lord. And then we'll be able to reap the good things that God has for us. And ultimately, that's in the joy of eternal life and that glory that he's stored up for us. And that rest that's to come. So if there's anyone understanding of their sinfulness before that one Lord and wanting the forgiveness of sins that God will give. But in his way, this is the opportunity. Come forward. Let us help you and we'll help you be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. And today you're gonna be raised to walk in newness of life. So please come if that opportunity is needed.